Welcome to CC Partners, the employer's choice. We provide expert legal and strategic advice in all areas of labor and employment law. By working closely with our clients, our experienced team delivers pragmatic, proactive solutions, resolving many issues before they escalate. Get to know us better at ccpartners.ca. Here we go. So um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Kelsey Orth. I am one of the lawyers at CC Partners, a law firm with our main office in Brampton and uh, satellite offices in Barrie and Sudbury. Uh, all we do is labor and employment law and we only act for employers. Uh, we are a management side labor and employment law firm and we have a particular base of knowledge and expertise in the childcare sector. So whether you are joining today as part of a not-for-profit center, a commercial operator, whether you're unionized or uh, not unionized, we know what you're going through, we know what you're dealing with. And uh, in that regard, we wanted to take the time today to try and give you as much information as we can uh, in these difficult times and to uh, try to answer as many of your questions uh, as you have. I mean, the good thing about having all of you together in this forum is that uh, if somebody has a question, it's likely there are other people with the same question and that's even more so now, uh, more so the case now than, uh, than normal. So um, I wanna introduce my colleagues who are with me today and uh, I can't say on which side they are because who knows what your screen looks like, but uh, we're all coming to you from different locations today. Um, my colleague and business partner, Mike McClellan is here. Hello everyone. And uh, we also have Charles Bins really. and Christina Tomaino, two of our intrepid associates. And uh, what we wanted to do was start off with a kind of general overview. Um, uh, Lisa, oh, thank you, Christina. I see the instructions already on there, awesome. Um, I will try not to get distracted by the chats and questions, but with that said, we're here today to talk about what the heck is going on and what can you do and what should you be doing with respect to your operations in the, the time of pandemic and with the closure of uh, daycares by virtue of the order under the declared emergency from the Premier of Ontario. So um, as we all I'm sure are aware, there have been a number of legislative measures undertaken by both the provincial government and the federal government. And we wanna talk about those today and what we know, what we don't know, what we're still waiting for and uh, how we in the childcare sector can uh, best protect your organization and ideally as well best serve your employees in the difficult times that we're all facing. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to kick it over to Mike to give us a bit of an overview. Thanks Kelsey uh, and good afternoon and good afternoon to everyone out there in uh, cyberspace. Um, what I'm going to take you through to kick things off is a, a quick overview of uh, how we're dealing with staff reductions through possibly through uh, temporary layoffs or more accurately we'll go through what exactly is a temporary layoff 
in the non-collective agreement environments. Uh, then we'll go through the uh, leaves of absences that are available as well under the uh, statute in Ontario. Um, so under the Employment Standards Act in Ontario, an employee is not terminated if they are laid off and the layoff does not exceed the uh, terms for a temporary layoff. Okay, um, now this is of uh, particular relevance in the non-union workplace. In the non-union workplace, typically the employment contract itself uh, should or needs to contain a right for the employer to put the employee on a temporary layoff. If the contract does not stipulate that the employee can be put on a temporary layoff, either specifically by the writing in the contract uh, or implicitly by past practice or um, you know, standards of the industry, the employee has the ability to treat that layoff as a constructive dismissal and seek wrongful dismissal damages. Uh, we see that sometimes in uh, common law wrongful dismissal cases where remedies at common law would really far exceed typically what is available under the Employment Standards Act. But common law remedies for wrongful dismissal is based on a theory that a person should be put in the position they would have been but for that determination. And we have really unique circumstances now where uh, Often I'm seeing, uh, even if an employee does claim to have been terminated, they would not uh, be at work uh, anyway during the common law reasonable notice period. Um, now I guess some issues we're gonna to have to think about is, is wage subsidy, which Charles is gonna talk about. Um, but also you know, now we, we have the uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit or CURB or CERB, where calling it both things, uh, depending on who's speaking. Um, so those may offset the uh, mitigation requirements in the common law wrongful dismissal setting. But what actually constitutes a temporary layoff then under the Employment Standards Act? Okay, well, like I said, it, it, temporary layoffs are in the act, they're defined. Um, any layoff that does not exceed 13 weeks of layoff in a rolling period of 20 consecutive weeks. Okay, so you can have someone on layoff for 10 weeks, bring them back for a couple of weeks, put them back on layoff for three weeks, and then bring them back. And, and if you do that all within a 20 week period, uh, you have not terminated the employee. Uh, but once you go beyond those 13 weeks in that 20 week period, then the employee is permitted under the Employment Standards Act to treat that uh, layoff as a termination. Under certain circumstances, such as if the employee is uh, receiving supplemental benefits, a temporary layoff can, ex can extend to 35 weeks in a period of 52 consecutive weeks. Um, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit later about how, um, how we're treating these staff reductions in the collective agreement context because uh, we are strongly and vehemently taking the position that employment is not, or employees are not being laid off at this point. But before we do that, um, some other provisions of the Employment Standards Act you should know about uh, really provide some alternatives to layoffs. And those are the um, 
the job protected but unpaid leaves of absences. And recently, the Ontario government amended the Employment Standards Act and revised the declared emergency leave to what is now emergency leave colon declared emergencies and infectious disease emergencies. Um, obviously uh, amended just for this kind of a situation. Uh, it can be triggered, for example, when there is a designated infectious disease under the regulation and COVID-19 is a designated infectious disease under the regulation now. What this leave of absence provides is for an indeterminate length of time, a job protected but unpaid leave if certain conditions are met. Uh, first, there has to be an emergency declared under the Emergency Management and Civil Protection and Civil Protection Act. And we have that right now. We're in that state of emergency. It's just been renewed for another two weeks. But on top of the state of emergency being declared, uh, there are some other factors, one of which is already in place. An order that applies to the employee is made under the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. That has been made. The uh, workplaces are ordered to be closed unless they've been determined to be essential workplaces. So daycares are ordered to be closed right now. So we have those triggering events. Even if we didn't have those triggering events, there would be certain other triggering events such as the employees under individual medical investigation, supervision, treatment, uh, or isolation or quarantine, uh, or there's a, there is a direction given by the employer in response to a concern of the employer that the employee may expose other individuals in the workplace to the designated infectious disease. So we have a number of triggering events, which if they occur, entitle the employee to uh, the new emergency and infectious disease leave of absence. So that means employees can take this job protected leave of absence rather than take a temporary layoff. That means their job is secure for as long as the criteria for the leave are in place. Okay. Um, now, some collective agreements specifically incorporate the Employment Standards Act leaves, uh, which I would say to our uh, clients with collective agreements that, you know, when QP or OPSU or whatever union is, is trying to say, hey, you're, you're not uh, abiding by your layoff obligations, we can say, actually, the collective agreement provides for these ESA leaves. And that's the position we're taking. They're on these leaves of absences. We're not putting them on layoff. And that won't affect their ability to apply for the curb. Um, and Charles is going to tell us a little bit about the uh, wage subsidy and how that might apply as well. Um, and I think one more thing I'll just touch on quickly is uh, there's another uh, common law concept called frustration of contract. Actually, it is in the Employment Standards Act as well. It's called frustration of the contract where by some intervening event that was not contemplated in the contract, either the employment contract or the collective agreement, uh, some intervening event happened that makes the contract impossible to perform. These, that includes things like, you know, natural disasters, but it also specifically includes things like a change in the law. And while we've certainly seen a change in the law, orders from the government saying that certain workplaces have to be closed. So uh, we have options other than putting employees on temporary layoffs to protect their leaves, um, to, to, or, and to protect their employment on an unpaid basis, 
uh, but uh, doesn't it doesn't um, prohibit us from taking the other steps we want to do to take care of our employees, like providing top-ups or like ensuring that they're able to access government benefits at this time. So that is kind of a, an overview of our the things we need to keep in mind for our staff reductions right now. Thanks, Mike. Um, <clears throat> so there's the kind of beginning and, and we know what employees are entitled to from a job protection perspective, as well as what potential pitfalls are out there for employers in navigating how we deal with employees when we don't have work for them. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of different considerations based on what kind of a situation you're in. As Mike uh, mentioned, we've got, you know, if you've got a collective agreement and the union is looking at it one way, chances are um, <clears throat> if you've talked to, to us or to other uh, representatives, we may not see eye to eye with the way the union does it. And um, it's a matter of making sure that, again, as I said in the, uh, in the intro, your business is protected in the short term and in the long term, because at some point we are going to come out of this and you need to make sure that, uh, first of all, there's a business to come back to. I mean, that sounds harsh, but um, it is not, uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility if things aren't uh, managed carefully and, and closely, right? And so that's what we're concerned about is making sure that you have the information necessary to make the right decisions for your business. Um, <clears throat> Charles, maybe you can talk then about the different federal programs available and you know obviously the, uh, the the CERB that Mike mentioned is a big one for the employees themselves and um, and then the other options available for employers as well because we have a lot of questions coming in or had a lot of questions coming in about um, how the wage subsidy might work and although we frustratingly did not get all of the information we wanted today um, we can certainly share some more and I know Christine has been monitoring all the questions as well. So um, I suspect we'll hear from her at some point in the not too distant future as well. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Kelsey. So um, what I'm going to talk about, like Kelsey said, is kind of the, the support for individuals and businesses that the federal government has announced and the de details that we have. Um, a couple things that I will note um, as we've been kind of alluding to already while we don't have all the information that we would want on how these programs are going to work and how they're going to interact with each other or how they may be prevented from interacting with each other uh, particularly for those of you in a unionized environment there is also some value in knowing what we don't know because i'm sure you're all aware that um, unions or even employees will make certain assertions um, and it's it's good to know um, what you don't know so that you can know whether they have, you know, ground to stand on when they're making those kinds of assertions. So um, it is a bit frustrating to not have the level of detail that we would like because I know you all want to make decisions and you want to communicate them out to your employees as soon as you can. Um, but at this point, unfortunately, a lot of the advice we're giving, depending on the question, is going to be this or that or kind of have to wait to see. Um, so the other thing I'm going to do then, when I'm giving this kind of overview, it is just an overview. So um, Christina is going to get into some of the quite specific questions that you guys had, and a lot of the details are more easily digestible when you get into specific questions like that. So we'll kind of save that for the next part of this video conference. 
um, and I'll just give you the general details. So the federal government has basically announced a, a three-point plan to try and help businesses and workers get through this. And the first step of that is freeing up credit. Um, so that's and probably generally geared towards private businesses to try and help them in the short, short term to make sure that they can pay their bills and pay wages and whatnot. The second part of that is the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, which I'm going to call the CERB. Um, and then they've come out in the last few days and said that the CERB is designed, uh, we'll see how it works out in practice, but it's designed for workers who are no longer working for COVID-related reasons. And then you have the wage subsidy, which we got a few more details on today. And the messaging around the wage subsidy, I think pretty much from the start has been, it's designed to keep employees engaged in employment relationship. So you heard uh, Morno and Trudeau today saying things like, if you've laid off employees, they hope the wage subsidy will encourage businesses to hire employees back and then you'll get refunded or subsidized for, you know, substantially all the wages at a later date. Whether that will work in practice for different types of businesses kind of remains to be seen. Um, so I think the, the credit options are fairly straightforward. So I'm going to talk more about the CERB and um, the wage subsidy. So the CERB, as I said, um, we do have legislation on this now. So it applies to workers, uh, which is kind of broadly defined as someone who's 15 years old is resident in Canada and for 2019 uh, or the 12 month period prior to applying for the benefit had a total income of at least 5,000 arising generally from employment related sources. So employment income or EI benefits or whatever. Um, and what it provides then is an income support payment is the way that they phrase it. And it's $2,000 for every four week period. Um, the messaging has been a little confusing here because it's we keep talking about months, but the legislation defines every application is for a specific four week period. And every employee in order to be entitled to the $2,000 has to have 14 consecutive days at the beginning of the four week period where they're not receiving any income. Um, and there, there are questions about whether, and we'll get into this in the questions, whether top-ups can be designed to help employees through these periods. And we'll deal with that later. But generally, you have a four-week period, can't receive income during the first two-week period. And then they indicated today that every four weeks, the employee will have to go back in and attest that they're still not working and still related to COVID-19. And then they'll start their next four-week period. And there's a maximum of four of these periods, so 16 weeks coverages uh, and a total of $8,000 if you qualify for each four-week period. Um, and that's that's essentially it for CERB. The fund with the CERB comes in, um, like I said, whether you can add top-ups, what do people do uh, when they're on EIs? So the government hasn't quite said. They've suggested that people who are on, a, on EI now or were on EI prior to March 25th, should just stay in that process, but then they've also said that they don't need to go ahead and reapply again. So they may actually be moving people who've applied to EI for COVID-related reasons over to the CERB, but they may just keep them in the EI regime. That kind of remains to be seen. So again, that's one thing that we don't really know. Um, the connection here with the wage subsidy, 
again, new information that we got today is, I think it was Morno came in and said that anyone receiving the CERB cannot also be getting paid through the wage subsidy as well. So this is where they kind of uh, draw the line between the two. If you're working for an employer who's getting the wage subsidy, then you're not going to be getting the CERB. And if you're kind of, we've had some conversations about, you know, whether an employee can work two weeks off, two weeks, those kinds of relationships. So it remains to be seen how that all fits together. But that's, in general, if you're receiving wage supplement to keep employees on the payroll, then those employees are not going to be, uh, likely not going to be eligible for the CERB during the period where you have that kind of arrangement maintaining your employment. So that's kind of the serve in broad strokes. Uh, the wage subsidy, as I said, um, so it covers those four week periods. It's backdated like the serve, I should mention, both backdated to March 15th. Um, so to qualify for the wage subsidy, the first thing question for you guys is they mentioned today that it's, it's likely not gonna be available to public employers or at least certain types of public employers. So in the same breath, Morno mentioned that it will uh, apply for not-for-profits and for charities. So it remains to be seen how they're going to determine how much public money you can get to support your enterprise and still qualify for the wage subsidy. So that's one detail that we're waiting for. But what they have said is you do have to experience a 30% gross revenue dip. And that's in comparison to the same months as last year. So it's uh, as originally communicated it's supposed to be a three-month wage subsidy March, April, May. So if you are whatever the public-private, you qualify there, you have to look at your revenues for March to see if you qualify. Compared to the last year's March, if you're down 30% or more, then you will qualify. And another thing, they've been saying this all along, is that they will get questions from reporters about um, you know, certain types of businesses that kind of revenue matching month by month doesn't make a lot of sense. And essentially all they've said is they will continue to review and make sure that businesses that are affected will, they'll find a way to, you know, do an accurate assessment of what the impact on the revenues has been and they'll just kind of go forward. So they're kind of asking people to take a leap of faith and trust that the government will uh, make sure that they qualify if they've been affected. They've also suggested that they would like employers to be doing everything they can to top up the wages to 100%. Doesn't seem to be a requirement at this point, but they do stress that. And uh, they're currently working on getting the application and administrative details figured out. We haven't, we don't really have any of those. They suggested that the, the portal is kind of up and running, but it's not gonna be online for uh, a few weeks. And then they don't expect the money to be distributed to businesses for about six weeks at the uh, and it is press conference, Morno mentioned that he hopes it's in three weeks, but uh, three to six weeks at least. Um, so those are kind of in broad strokes, the, the two main programs. And I'm, I'm sure you guys have questions about how they overlap and interact and uh, we'll answer those questions as best we can. Sorry, it took me a second to unmute myself there. So a lot of questions uh, arising out of the wage subsidy program, uh, as you mentioned to Charles and Christine, I know you were watching them come in um, over the course of the last day and a half, as well as 
on the uh, on the chat here that's going on, and it's the same one, right? Uh, at least at first that we want to look at. So, Charles, I'll ask you because you were just talking about it and put you on the spot, and I think I know what the answer is. But people are asking. It's a publicly they they say that the wage subsidy will not apply to publicly funded organizations and yet in the same breath they're saying it will apply to not-for-profits and registered charities and um, I mean I know there are lots of different kinds of not-for-profits and charities out there I can't imagine that there are a whole lot of them that are not at least in some way publicly funded and particularly in this group here um, even the commercial operators have as uh, Basil's pointed out, a, a contract for service with the city of Toronto. And so they're funded by public money when they get subsidized childcare spots. Um, do we know what, uh, do we know how that might interact or what they mean by that? Or, or is that another one that we have to wait for? So I think largely we have to wait for that. We can look at what they suggested for the previous 10% wage program that they introduced through Bill C-13, I believe, last week. So, like Charles, and one other thing, too, I, I, saw, um, I had a couple of people ask if, if you were able to speak up. Um, oh, yeah, sorry. As well. Yeah, it's, so, we're, we're, um, we're working on the technology, everyone, so thank you for, uh, for your patience and indulgence. Yeah, so I, I think largely we have to wait on that. We can look at the 10% wage subsidy program, which is what they initially introduced, which basically included you know, not-for-profit um, charities, private organizations, basically everything except crown corporations and, you know, truly public entities like hospitals. But unfortunately, we just don't have the information that we want on that front yet. Yeah. Well, and I know um, for those of, of us in this group who have, um, you know, who are the not-for-profits and, and directly funded, at least in part, by the city, and in part by parent fees, um, you know, there's a lot of talk as well. And, and Amy uh, at Treetop is at the forefront of the um, discussions with respect to some kind of stabilization funding, but um, we still don't have the, uh, you know, any specifics around that. Um, so let's just say, Charles, um, well, I mean, you know what, I'll, I'll turn it over to Christina because I don't want to get the question wrong. Um, but what I was going to go with, Christina, was the, the question about, um, you know, if, if we put aside the publicly funded thing and assume that our, our people in this chat can apply, um, how, how does the whole revenue loss thing apply? What, uh, what are we at with that? So that's, um, that's a great question, one that we've been getting a lot from our clients. And I think, again, uh, it's going to be an issue of wait and see in determining how the revenue uh, loss is going to be calculated. So one question that we've had um, from clients who have been reaching out is uh, whether centers should be refunding um, at least a portion of the March parent fees in order to perhaps adjust the um, well, loss to hit that 30% target. Um, we suspect most centers likely won't qualify for uh, March based on the subsidies already received. 
uh, but again, it just, it really does remain to be seen what the specifics are going to be of those calculations. So while, while I've got you, Christina, are there, uh, what are some of the other questions that, uh, that have come up today that, uh, you know, kind of might be pertinent to address at, at this point? Yeah, and I think um, one of the biggest ones that's come in uh, a couple times actually in, in the chat already uh, is the interaction between the various benefits. So for example, if some centers have been closed already for a couple weeks, uh, employees may already have accessed EI benefits. They may have heard about the SERB benefit and considered that as an option. Uh, and now hearing about the wage subsidy, I think the real question now is how do those interact? If an employee is already on EI, uh, will they be able to access the wage subsidy if the center qualifies? Uh, and I think for, for centers with part-time employees, uh, where they may actually come out ahead with the CERB benefit, can you divide some employees on CERB, uh, some employees on the wage subsidy plan? So maybe Charles, I'll, I'll throw that back to you. Sure, thanks, Christina. So, um... There are some bright line divisions that have been made thus far, and then there are a lot more kind of uh, gray ones. So the, the one bright line, as I mentioned before, is where an employer is able to continue employing people and applies for and receives the wage subsidy, then it looks like there's not gonna be any room for employees to also get the serve benefit on top of that. So that one seems pretty clear and it looks actually, unlike a lot of these things, pretty easy to manage and administer going forward. Uh, big question is for people who are already receiving or have applied but are not yet receiving EI, where do they stand with respect to the CERB? And as I said, the government has kind of indicated two things. They've said, so if you are in receipt of EI benefits, one thing they've said for sure is you're covered, you don't have to do anything else, whether that means you're just gonna to continue to receive EI benefits or you're gonna be transitioned to the CERB. They haven't quite said yet. Um, for people who have applied for EI and have not yet, are not yet in receipt of the benefits, they have said there's no need to reapply. Again, they haven't said whether you're gonna continue on the EI stream or if you'll end up with the CERB. They've kind of indicated that you, they might transition you into the CERB, um, but it's, again, it's not quite clear there. Charles, if I, could if I could interject, Charles, what I uh, was reading recently was that if an employee is in receipt of EI and it runs out, they can still uh, apply for the CERB program if the CERB program is still being offered. Yeah, and that's at the usually at the back end. So the CERB program is backdated to March 15th. And it's, for now anyways, carrying on until October 3rd. So if you've been on EI for a while and you can't get back into employment for a COVID-related reason before October 3rd, you could then um, apply for the CERB at that point. So they do kind of interact that way. Um, and then again, a, a lot of this stuff is, so the amount of the CERB, how long it goes, um, all that kind of thing. It is subject to change, uh, mostly by regulation. So it's just one of those things you have to keep an eye on. And I guess, I mean, the question here, obviously, 
for you guys probably is how do I advise my employees if they have these questions? And I think at this point, what I've been telling people is, um, and it's it's really hard to get into, but being able to get through the Service Canada or to the EI people, if you can, if you have a question, they're probably best situated to answer it. Um, but at the end of the day, they sh employees should feel um, pretty comfortable that whether it's going to be EI, whether it's going to be served, there's going to be something there for them. And the government has said that the, the application process for the CERB is going to consist of four questions and it should be very streamlined. So there's not really much to worry about there. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to jump in and I know, Christina, you're gathering some of the questions along the side and just seeing them all um, coming in about, you know, and I see Amy's mentioned the the CERB versus, versus um, you know, people actually working so because the CERB is basically a lump sum and uh, kind of approaches that whole basic income guarantee line of thinking as opposed to being based on an employee's actual earnings. Well, absolutely, some people might be better off on that than they would be, um, you know, continuing to work. And that's, I, I, I myself sit on a board for a not-for-profit organization and we've talked about that possibility as well. Um, nothing seems to say that we can't do that in terms of laying off some people and and uh, keeping others on and doing what works best i think the frustrating thing uh, as you are all sitting there asking the same questions and we're not able to give you the exact answers right now is the government is asking employers to you know quote unquote do the right thing and and keep their employees um, going but not making it easy at all um, you know, from our perspective in terms of advising our employers, what the safest and most prudent thing to do is, I mean, at best right now, wait. And if you've already made your financial plans to keep paying your employees, you know, through the end of this week or, or some, I know some organizations have done longer, some have not been able to do it even at this point. Um, I don't think it makes sense to make any decisions right now on an assumption that you're going to a qualify and b that the wage subsidy is going to be perfect and easy for everyone, um, you know the government's answer to that, uh, which is essentially an unasked question by any of the reporters, at least that I've heard, um, was well, you know what, you, we we want you to do the right thing, employers, and you heard Trudeau say it yesterday, and if you, you know, if you're worried about cash flow, then we have access to to uh, guaranteed credit. Well, thanks, but when we're looking at, um, you know, not the greatest profit margins, uh, whether we're not-for-profit or not, um, you know, and the, I know it's not easy to keep a business going when there's no revenue coming in or when revenue is significantly reduced. Um, you know, the government's essentially asking us to be a, a float for them and still not making it clear how long that float will have to, to carry uh, employees. Um, I mean, the easiest thing to do is certainly to put employees off and, and get them on the SERP. Um, what we want to try to do though is, is see if there are alternatives that might be available to us. And uh, frustratingly, we can't answer all those questions right now. Um, you know, I think part of it too is everybody's got you know specific questions to their center right and it's hard for us to say um, without getting into the specifics and, and looking at every individual contract of employment or every 
specific collective agreement, what might be happening. But what we do want to do, um, in addition to giving you this overview of what's happening, is talk about some of the options that you may want to consider as we go down this road. Um, <clears throat> in terms of, you know, uh, I think Mike talked about the difference between layoff and, and how you might get around constructive dismissal. Um, we've explored options or we're at looking at, you know, depending on what the, the wage subsidy legislation says, uh, let's assume people qualify for it. What can we do? Um, you know, can we lay some people off and keep some people on and, and try to manage both our own money as an employer that way, as well as, um, you know, as well as kind of assessing who's better off under which program for individual employees. I, I don't see why we couldn't do that. Um, uh, some of the other options in, include some kind of, we, we, uh, we were thinking outside the box today amongst ourselves, uh, uh, all of the lawyers at CC Partners, and we were wondering whether there might be some way to um, do some kind of rotation where people are able to access, um, you know, serve at, at some point and, and wages at some point. Um, you know, these are all things that, that might be possible and, and might help prolong an employer's ability to give a little bit more to the employees, right? I mean, um, all well and good if you say, well, we can support full wages for two weeks, but then we're done. Um, versus, well, if we knew what the government was asking of us and going to provide us, we might be able to have a better long-term plan. Um, one of the questions uh, um, that we did get that I think we can address, and I'll ask uh, Christina to, to deal with this one, is about um, the use of entitlements before um, going off. There have been a bunch of questions about that, and I know you've got them in front of you, so I'll, I'll turn it over to Christina here to to uh, deal with that aspect. I keep forgetting to unmute this. Um, so we've had some questions about, for example, if um, employees have accrued vacation or other entitlements that they can use to bridge the gap, is that something that centers can be asking that employees use or directing employees to use to say, okay, um, we're looking at some uncertainty we know we may be able to access these benefits, but we, we can't make any guarantees right now. Uh, can we have employees use their vacation time? Uh, and I think it, it, to some extent, it depends on the individual circumstances, uh, but certainly that can be an option uh, to bridge some of this gap. Uh, so for example, if you have employees sitting on two weeks of accrued vacation time, uh, they, can, they can take that now while um, while waiting to see what the approach will be, but it may um, it may have some impact on the timing of benefits. For example, as Charles mentioned, there is that 14-day uh, period without employment or without income to access the CERB benefits. So those are just things to to take into consideration when. Uh, putting these options before employees and, and getting them to decide how they're going to use these entitlements. <laughs> Sorry, Christina. 
Um, thank you for that. And, and I know people are asking and, and ex, you know, expressing their frustration um, at not being able to get the specifics right now. And believe, believe me, we are in the same boat. Um, you know, our kind of pledge, as you've seen it in the chat, is uh, we will absolutely do this again when we do have the specifics. What we wanted to do uh, today, and we've still got some more time um, to the extent that we can talk in kind of general uh, terms, but what we wanted to do was make sure everybody had the basic information and, uh, and aware of some of the options that might be available so that you can be thinking about that so that you know, when we do get the specifics about whether or not you qualify for wage subsidy, you know whether you can enact plan A, B, or X of, of your planning, right? And that's what contingency planning is, is about. And, you know, it's been um, ridiculously fast-paced in terms of change over the last three weeks. And, um, you know, everybody, everybody's looking for answers, right? Your employees are looking for answers from you. Uh, we're all looking for answers from the government and at the same time we have the very real personal aspect that is applying to everybody so um, not easy times and we want to make it uh, you know to the extent we can a little bit easier um, I see a question down there about sub plan as well Christina when you want to kind of address that a little bit absolutely and I think um, as you mentioned things have been changing so quickly and Earlier on, I think the, the approach of many employers facing these layoffs was going to be, okay, well, we want to take care of our people. We've historically done that through a sub-plan or a supplementary unemployment benefit plan, um, which is attached to EI benefits. And so as we've had uh, a number of uh, changes with the SERB benefit and, and with the news that any EI applications are going to be essentially shifted over into the SERB benefit. Um, the the sub-plans are, are somewhat less relevant in terms of considering top-ups. Uh, so as we've uh, said a number of times today, it's still unclear whether we can top up the SERB benefit, uh, but certainly for employers who are getting the wage subsidy, they can arrange for a top-up of that 25%, uh, which they may have been willing to do under a formalized subplan, and they can now do uh, perhaps more informally with the wage subsidy. Uh, and again, I know frustratingly, um, we'll just have to wait for some more details on how those potential pop-ups will work. Thanks, Christina. I see I see some questions being asked and some answers being given as well um, over here. And I, I just wanted to pipe in on a couple of them. I know Karen's asked. Uh, if you have to provide vacation as an option or if you can make it mandatory and and we have had that question from clients um you know as you know um the 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 esa first of all first of all suggests that the timing of vacation is uh upon a well it's always the prerogative of the employer and that uh the agreement of the employee is is required only insofar as um you know you're making them take it in those one week blocks if you i mean i think also as to mike's point about constructive dismissal um you know these are different times right and whether you're going to make it mandatory because i know one of the concerns is when we come back if it's you know whether it's two months or six months from now and i don't mean to scare anybody but i'm just kind of throwing these scenarios out there um 
you can't have everybody all of a sudden looking to use their vacation and, and be off when you're trying to ramp back up your operations. Um, and so, you know, I think that in many instances, offering it as an option first um, is one thing to do. And then, you know, the, the planning changes from, from day to day and week to week, right? But uh, mandatory is, you know, so I think the question was from, from Karen and from others. Um, the question about accruing holiday time or vacation time during a, whether it's a layoff or an absence, it's going to be dependent on the individual circumstances. So it's a tough one to answer. Um, it's certainly a consideration, right? There, these are all the things you need to, to take into account when determining what we can do going forwards. Um, <clears throat> going forward, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I'm trying to talk and look at the questions as we go here too. Um, I'll just jump in for a second, Kelsey. Yeah, please do. Um, so I'm seeing some follow-up questions on, on the sub plan uh, and whether if employers already have those set up and employees are accessing those benefits, um, if they can still do so. And uh, once again, that, that depends. If employees are already accessing EI benefits um, and the, the intent is to have them remain on layoff, remain on EI and accessing the sub benefits, uh, then I think the guidance that we're getting from the government is uh, if you're accessing EI benefits, you'll stay on EI. You won't be transferred to the SERB benefit. Uh, but if the application is still in progress, you will be shifted over. Uh, so for some, the option of an existing or newly established subplan uh, may still be available and accessible. Uh, but if the wage subsidy comes in and there's the option to bring employees back, uh, that may change the uh, the considerations there on whether that's the best approach. Sure. And th there was, uh, what was the other question I was going to uh, um There was a question about if if we have staff on the subsidy and, and do a top up, can you expect them to do work? Well, if you're paying the employees, um, you know, you can absolutely expect some um, work from them all the more so if you're providing a subsidy, but I mean, in general, uh, I think that's, the wages are coming from you and just because now, I mean, I wouldn't suggest necessarily doing it for some and not for others, um, but uh, you know, that's something to, to talk about how it would look and, and how it would work, I think on a case by case basis um, based on your organization. But I think, you know, it's a reasonable expectation certainly that if employees are being paid, then you can ask certain things of them. Um, but let's be realistic too. I mean, we're not going to ask them to be on call for eight hours just out of spite. That doesn't make sense. But certainly doing things, um, I, I know someone mentioned uh, doing some professional development, that kind of thing, and uh, making sure employees are kind of keeping up to date, right? Um, what was the other? There was another one I was going to ask. Uh, or going to address, but I'll have to look for that. Um, <clears throat> bear with me for a moment. Question about taxes. Um, Charles, what, uh, what can you tell us about the way the different benefits are taxed? So, uh, yeah, I think it depends. Um, on what you're asking there. So 
um, the tax consequences, for example, to employees who are receiving benefits. Um, so we know, for example, that CERB benefit is a taxable benefit. Um, with respect to um, a wage subsidy or how that will affect um, anything, again, I don't think we have any information on that. I don't, I don't know if you have a, um, a more specific question that you want answered in that, but if you do, feel free to uh, type that in the, in the group chat or we'll try and be more specific with our response. Christina, I can I can see you there perusing the the sheet of questions uh, that we got in over the last couple of days as well. Um, what else is on there that we uh, we haven't yet hit on or covered? So I think one of the um, one of the questions that that keeps coming up, uh, and I know we've we've talked about it to some extent. Um, but is, is what do we do now in terms of a best practice if we're expecting to be closed for some time uh, or if we're expecting to perhaps reopen and then close again, reopen, going with the, the curve of, of COVID. Um, so I think what we've, we've seen a couple times is just some, uh, some requests for some general tips on how to best manage this. If we're asking employees to come back for this wage subsidy, how to manage that. Yeah. Um, th thoughts from anyone on that? Um, <clears throat> Kelsey, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, so, can you can you repeat the question, Christina? I'm sorry, I uh, I had one eye on the chat and one eye on you, and I apologize. I know it was about staff coming back. Um, so some of the questions we've seen, and I saw Shelly chimed in in the chat, uh, is if there's a, a child care center and they are really hoping to keep their people, uh, they don't want to lose anyone as a result of this. Um, what are some best practices in terms of managing the potential recall um, or closure, just to make sure that we have continuity of employment and we're protecting those relationships? Right. Well, and I mean, I think that flows into as well the uh, suggestion from, um, you know, from the prime minister that employers, you know, were, they're doing this wage subsidy program so that employers will rehire employees, right? And whether you're doing it now to put people on the wage subsidy and you can, um, you know, financially handle doing that is, is one thing, but, you know, coming out the other side of it as well, they're kind of a couple different aspects to it um, you know I think it's all a matter a matter of communication too right I mean you have uh, the as the employer you have the right to recall anyone based on your ability to pay them right and um, you know we've got <clears throat> um, different obligations depending on how you've structured the absence or, or how they've taken their absence. Um, but I mean, retention on the other end is going to be uh, is going to be a big thing too. Um, you know, in the short term, probably nothing is going to happen. So if we want to bring them back uh, in order to either pay them 
you know, partial wages and, and depend on the wage subsidy, if, if indeed it can apply to us and makes sense, um, then, you know, communicating. But even if we don't know yet, um, much like we're doing today, just some communication saying, you know, we're looking at what we can do to support you um, is important um, because retention, yeah, it's, it's a big thing. Mike, I see you raised your hand. You want to jump in? Yeah, there's a, on the topic of communication, a really good question. How do we best communicate when we are in a, a union workplace? Do we do it to the employees directly or to, or, or to the employees through the union? Um, you know, I think it depends on what you are communicating. Um, I've had some situations where, uh, you know, what we have to do is essentially work out a letter of understanding uh, with our union to ensure that we can provide the benefits we want to the employees over a period of time, but still uh, preserve all of our rights under a collective agreement. Um, you certainly don't want to go offside the collective agreement and be seen as directly dealing with the employees when it comes to things like working out a top-up plan or some kind of supplementary payment over a period of time. On the other hand, if you are just making a uh, a more general broad sweeping communication to the employees. I like I've, I've been part of other ones that are essentially giving notice that uh, the center has determined that we are able to make certain payments for a certain amount of time. I think it's completely uh, appropriate for that to go out as a communication to the workplace um, as a whole, certainly copied to the union. Um, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be uh, scared of communicating with the employees so long as you're not going offside your obligations not to deal directly with them on collective agreement matters. Thanks, Mike. Um, so quick confirmation to uh, Jennifer's question here. Can you please confirm, do we have to top up the 75% wage sub? And if so, does it have to be 25% or we can, or can we make a plan um, individual to you to, to say, uh, do 15% of that top up. There is no, uh, Charles will correct me immediately if I am misspeaking here, but there's no mandatory top up um, and nor is it a mandatory up to 100%. The government is asking us uh, as employers to, uh, to do it all as we've said many times, but um, as far as we know at this point, that has not been um, a part of the various pronouncements. Am I correct in, in stating it that way, Charles? Yeah, that's right. They've kind of pleaded with employers to pay that extra 25% if they're able, but it's in no way a requirement in order to receive um, the subsidy as it's they've laid it out. And then while I've got the microphone here, I'll just see, I think I can answer uh, two questions in one here. So, um, um, someone asked about a follow-up about the, the taxes. Uh, will they be taxed the same as our regular payrolls? And then um, the other question someone asked about timelines. Um, if we wait to make a decision and continue to pay employees, what is your forecast for timelines to know more? So I, I think the answer to both of those questions is every, every day things are coming out, which is that's why it's one reason um, we're so happy to see everyone here today is because there's just so much information being put out there on a daily basis. With respect to taxes, um, if, you're, if you're looking at the wage subsidy, imagine it would be easiest for them just to keep things as normal as possible. 
uh, that way, but I would also imagine that they would have more information with that through the application process so that employers know what it is they have to do, whether they have to make some deductions, or that kind of thing. So I'd look for more information there. And then with respect to timelines, um, you know, we're monitoring these daily briefings that they're giving, and they give little tidbits here and there. Um, so all we can really say is um, keep your eyes and ear open. Um, keep checking back, but we've got, you know, obviously we'll continue to do these webinars as necessarily. We've got our blog, we've got our Twitter feed, all that kind of thing. So anything you can do to monitor uh, the updates, it's just coming fast and furious, and I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. Uh, and and uh, quickly on that note, Charles, I know we have a lot of people here who also were invited, um, you know, through uh, either their own organizations or from um, connections that we have in the industry. And I, and I love it. I love providing as much information to as many people to whom it's relevant as possible. And what we need to do from our end is, uh, is beef up our capabilities on Zoom um, to be able to host more than the 100 people that we had in here today. And we will do that. So please keep sharing. Um, we've got, uh, we now, the good thing is, you know, even without uh, convening a, a webinar like this, we have not only, as Charles said, our blogs, which you, know, you can easily, um, you know, the, the email that you got with this link, and if you didn't get the full email, please uh, ask for it, and we'll be happy to uh, actually, maybe Mike, um, I'm trying to think if we can do it after the fact, but if someone can share in the chat, um, obviously our website is www.ccpartners.ca, but even easier is if you get the um, our, our daily or our, our regular blogs delivered directly to your inbox, but also now we have a list going um, specific to the childcare industry, and that's how we circulated um, the link for this webinar initially was through our own clients and recognizing that not everybody here is directly a, a client of CCP, at least right now, um, we're happy to add more people to that list so you can keep getting the information, whether we send it out in an email blast, if it's something quick, or whether it's uh, an invitation to another one of these, which we will do, and it's just a matter of figuring out when. Um, so please, uh, you know, ask us for information directly. Um, we'll send you some various contact information in the, in the chat there. Um, reach out to any one of the four of us or any of our colleagues uh, at the firm if you have specific questions uh, or if you just want to know how to get um, more information because um, right now the more information we can all share the, the better and I think you know from watching the chat as well um, seeing people asking and answering each other's questions or at least you know positing theories to each other that's useful too right and um, as we get a little more adept at using the technology and can handle it a little bit more, we might even be able to do it more interactive, which, um, you know, if you've seen any of our live seminars, that's the way we much prefer to do things. But um, I think um, so far we've, uh, we've done everything we can and, and we will continue to do so. Um, I'm not sure that I want to take up any more of anybody's time. I can hear my children upstairs uh, going a little bit squirrely and I've left my, my wife to deal with them alone uh, right around dinner time. So um, again, if you have any specific or urgent questions that we didn't get to, contact us directly and, and uh, just watch 
watch our watch our website and watch your email in the coming days because there will be more information and uh, we will keep digging to get the answers to those questions that we could not answer today but uh, I wanted to arm you with the information so you can start considering options and be agile and, and uh, adaptable as we go forward. And Kelsey, I assume that uh, while we are recording this, so we'll be able to put it up for people to re-watch. We'll put it up, uh, we'll, we'll put the links up on our website, but we'll also have it on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page. Yeah, uh, and and uh, hopefully, hopefully one of those uh, resources will work for you. And if not, then, you know, good old fashioned, I will type my cell phone number in the chat right now. Um, so that if anybody has trouble, you can give me an old-fashioned phone call. Uh, some of you have it already, and I, don't be afraid to use it. I'm happy to take calls. Just give me about an hour to do some stuff with my kids, and then I'll be uh, I'll be back on there tonight. So, um, thanks everyone. Thanks to uh, my colleagues Mike, Charles, and Christina for everything uh, that you you've done to get us to this point, and uh, as we keep going forward. We'll uh, look forward to chatting again. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, everyone, for attending. Uh, yeah. Oh, and sorry, I just saw here uh, a good suggestion um, to try and answer some of the questions that we weren't able to get to today on our blog. And certainly, um, we'll do that with respect to anything that we couldn't get to today that we do have answers to. And of course, as we get more information on some of the stuff we don't know yet, we'll absolutely be putting that up. Um, and circulating that. And like I said, we have uh, now a specific contact list for the childcare sector. So get on that and you can do that by, um, you know, emailing any one of us or emailing uh, info at ccpartners.ca and uh, requesting to be added to the daycare list. I think we're calling it for, uh, for lack of a better term. And I'm gonna put that information in the chat as well. Okay. Thanks everyone. Uh,